Yo, yo, what's good? It's Kid Cuddy, and you're listening to Behind the Baller Podcast with my dude, my ace, Ben motherfucking baller. Yeah. What up, people? You are now tuned in to Behind the Baller podcast. We are at episode nine. Almost at double digits, man. I am your host, Ben Baller, not Ben Humble. Man, people are in their feelings about about me being in this NBA 2K game. But you know what, though? It's okay, man. Their frowns make me smile. You know what I'm saying? So... Today, we're going to get into some shit. We're going to get into some real shit, okay? I want to get into the deep history about how I came up and the many hustles I had before I became a jeweler up till right around where I started out as a jeweler. So this shit might take a few episodes because, like, this shit might take four episodes, maybe five. I have no idea because, goddamn, my life is crazy as fuck. And never, ever have I ever went into full detail about the 90s anywhere. My wife doesn't even know 95% of these stories I'm about to spit. All right, so we're going to get right into it, man. If you follow me closely, you would know that I got, and I tell people this, I got all my hustle, my attitude from my mom. My mom, Helen, my mom was a hard worker. All right, she was just a beast when it came to work ethic. She was a dress contractor for 20 years. My mom came here with fucking 20 bucks. She came with like less than $100 to America. No bullshit. In like 1966 or some shit. I forgot what year it was. It was super early on. My mom was a dress contractor. Um, She averaged 80-hour work weeks. No bullshit. She would fall asleep at the factory. Like, no bullshit. She was sewing dresses like a motherfucker. My mom put the sewing machine in a lot of major contractors, all Korean people, like people from the guys who did denim for True Religion, the OG people from Guest Jeans. If you didn't know in the 80s, Guest Jeans was like Gucci. That shit was real for real. Shout out to my boy Nikolai Marciano, you know what I'm saying? And um, the fuck is uh, um, uh, Matt Marciano and uh, everyone's kind of like... Uh, MIA, but but Nikolai's there holding it down. I got a lot of love for guests. I had a lot of history with that shit during the 80s. And this was before any Korean was up on game on anything. Like just this was early, early on. I'm talking about this is obviously, you know, the 70s. So um my mom decided to like uh, my mom was sewing dresses in the garage at first. And my mom started to teach a few friends of hers, and people just started telling other people and they started following suit. And next thing you know, you know, all of downtown LA was filled with Korean dress contractors. LA warehouses filled up with Koreans running the same business. And prior to that, my mom and dad were so poor that my dad got pulled over for a minor ticket infraction and couldn't afford the fine, so he spent a few days in jail. My brother and sister lived in City Terrace. If you know where the fuck City Terrace is, like if you really know where City Terrace is, then you know like City Terrace ain't no, like 
we don't really have project housing in Los Angeles. You know, there there is some in, in Watts, I think, and, and um like the Nixon Gardens area and everything else. But like even in like South Central, there's really no project housing. It's like City Terrace is, is pretty fucking bad. It's a poor part of town. But um it wasn't until I, I was born that we started doing okay. I guess that's from you know from what my brother and sister told me, you know. And by okay, I mean we live middle class, you know, lower middle class, but um we're middle class as fuck. But my mom was doing this way before the Forever 21 family got involved in fashion. And, you know, like, um, my brother was a genius since he was a little tiny kid, you know. And, and um, my mom never worried about him because, like, in, in, in fact, my mom made him the boss. My, my dad and mom made my brother the boss of the house because they were so busy. You know, I was a latchkey kid. And I'm not like, this is what it was. You know, you, your parents worked. And anybody that's listened to this that's older or, or you know, I mean, how the fuck do you not understand? Today is different, but, you know, it's what it was. And um, my brother always got away with a bunch of shit because he was, uh, he, he had straight A's. And he went to a prestigious school. He went to school, you know, to a boarding school. And uh, my, my parents shipped him off. And um, I know that must have probably fucked him up and, and whatever. Um, but he was able to, to kind of do anything, say anything he want. And, um, but at the same time, you know, my dad beat the shit out of him. I mean, my, he, he, got, he got the shit beaten out of him countless times. Because my dad was a savage. And uh, we'll get more into my dad in another episode. You know, it's just, but my mom worked hard. My mom, my mom whooped some ass too. My mom beat my ass a few times. But I deserved it, you know. But at the same time, like my, my wife, I tell these stories and she's like, you I don't know what kind of, you know, that's jail time. I'm like, man, that's just Korean. I mean, I've seen blacks, I've seen Mexicans. Like, that's just how it was back then, you know. Nobody died and, you know, motherfuckers just got beat. Belt, sticks, whatever. It's just like, you can't do that shit now, you know. But that's what it was and my wife lived a totally different upbringing but um my mom worked really hard for a long ass time and when my parents got divorced she moved into an apartment building downtown downtown los angeles and this was like way before downtown la was like a popping spot right i'm talking about like bunker hill this was like a this was this was a dope spot this was cool you know but it was um it was just different it wasn't like a family area or nothing, you know, and I was, I was, I was pretty young. Um, my mom lived in that last era of working hard where like, if you worked hard, you could make money. Like that was just it, you know, like, and I'm being serious. Like you, you didn't necessarily have to have a lot of talent. My mom, my mom had some skills, but you didn't have to have a ton of talent and you could just make money just by working hard. Like that shit don't exist anymore. Now today you need a ton of skill. Like, you need skill, you need marketing, you need all kinds of shit to make it. So, my parents' divorce fucked me up. Like, it ruined my life, period. You know, real talk. Uh, I think it wasn't until I had kids that I realized how truly bad it fucked up my mind. Um, I thought we had a pretty stable household, even though my parents fought and shit, and they would get, like, physical and everything, but... um. Once they actually separated, my life just fucked up. Went, to, went just went down the toilet, and I went from having A's. I mean, I was a smart kid, you know. Period. I think it was just genetically in, in us to be smart. But I went from having A's to going to D's and F's. Um, I turned to stealing. I've mentioned this before. I turned to gangs. You know, I wanted to feel cool, and that's what you know. I was man. Again, I will say this, man. I've been so obsessed with gang life and gangster shit all my life, and to this day, right now, like if there's a movie about gangs or or fucking prison about vegas and scumbag shit and just like degenerate shit like i'm all for it i'm just in it and um it's the environment i grew up in you know and um 
on the weekends, I'd stay with my mom. My parents divorced, you know what I'm saying? And she gave me a, a $20 allowance if my, my grades were on par, if they were good. And I think she also felt bad a bit because of the divorce. And she knows I was acting up and I got arrested and shit at a young age. I got arrested at like fucking, I was nine, I'm trying to think. It's like 82. I got arrested in Cerritos, California, of all fucking places. I got arrested at the Cerritos Mall. I'll never forget, man. They had this fucking place over there called Farrell's. Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor. And this was my, my favorite. This place was like, fuck, it might as well have been Mr. Chow's. This place had like crazy ice cream fucking Sundays. They had burgers and fries. It's just, I was obsessed with just because I didn't even eat like that. So it was like, it was like a delicacy. It was like a fucking special moment to go to Cerritos Mall and go to Farrell's. And I had like a distant relative that lived over there. And um, they had this swap meet, not swap meet, I'm sorry. They had an outdoor mall sale because Sears was being renovated. And um, this was the time when, when ColecoVision just came out. And me and my boy Fred, I have no idea where the fuck Fred is now. But he was also a really smart kid too. We were in the Cerritos Mall and um, we grabbed a couple bags from Nordstrom's. And um, we took the bags and we went to this tent where they had the outdoor sale and we started pushing these video games outside of the tent. So it ended up be on the street side, like in the parking lot and no one saw us and we got away. We put like $900 of fucking games inside these bags. And then um, my boy Fred was like, Hey man, let me go back. He's an older dude. He was like two years older than me. You know, I was like, I was nine. He was 11 or 12 and he had to have more sense in him. He might've been even 13. He was, he was definitely much older. Uh, we took the bus there. And um, he came back and he's like, yo, I'm gonna take this little fucking adapter. And I was like, okay, fuck it, whatever. Now I'm way the fuck. I'm like 200, 300 yards away from the tent at a stoplight at the mall. And this motherfucker gets his shit, starts running over to me and a security guard, this Mexican dude starts chasing him. Slim dude, never forget. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. And I was like, yo, man, this dude's calling. Like, he's, he's coming out. If I would have ran, there'd have been no motherfucking chance in a million years they would have caught me. But anyways, they caught me. They caught it because I didn't know what to do. I just, I was like shook. I, I didn't know what to do at that point. So we get arrested. It was grand theft, larceny. So um, they, uh, because I live so far from Cerritos, I was way the fuck home, far from home. They tried to call my parents. I wouldn't give them my phone number because I was scared because I knew my parents were going to kill me. So um, I just started talking shit. And uh, we were the youngest dudes in the jail cell. You know, there's those people in there doing all kinds of shit. And um. They kept asking, oh, God damn, you guys are young. What are you guys doing here? You could look like decent people. And I was like, oh, man, I'm in here for Grand Theft Larson. And I started cutting jokes in there, started making people crack up and shit. I remember the sheriff came in then. He was like, is something funny? And I cracked a joke and everyone started laughing. And then he grabbed the back of my hand, slammed me against the wall. And I busted my nose. And I was like, man, fuck this dude. So I told this dude my fake birthday. I wouldn't tell him the fucking truth or anything, whatever. And we're there until like fucking one in the morning. And I can't imagine what my mom and dad must have been thinking. And they're like, yo. My son is not home, and it's been I probably worried as a motherfucker. So they had me call home, and I called home. My brother and sister are freaking out. They don't know what to fucking do. And they're like, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to tell dad. Don't worry about it. I'm like, no, 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 don't tell dad. Don't tell dad. So anyways, my dad come to go get me, and there was no fine. I was too young, whatever. And, and um, my dad whooped my ass right there at the police station, and, uh, he, uh, and, and Fred's parents whooped his ass, and it was just like a fucking crazy thing. And that was just like the beginning of the end. So, you know, my mom just felt bad. I was getting in all kinds of trouble. But really even, like, to keep it 100, my mom really had no idea how much of a fucking hooligan I was. 
And like later on, man, during the summers, I asked my mom if I could go work for her and like work for a below minimum wage. And, you know, I was I was super young. And after two days of working for my mom, I quit. That shit was tough as fuck. Carrying around fabric. I'm talking about like that shit felt like 100 pounds. And I don't know how much I weighed then. But like carrying around fabric, um, going from sewing machine to another, delivering shit to another fucking factory. It was just like, I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this shit. And being in a factory all day long from like 7 a.m. in the morning until like 5 p.m. It was just, it was too much. I don't know how the fuck my mom lasted so long. But um, and she did, you know. And I just, I just quit. I couldn't do that shit no more. And um, my mom, she uh, in the business. She worked with only Jewish people, and there was this one Italian guy. Um, I won't say his name, but uh, he was connected. And when I say connected, you know, he's connected. I mean, he was connected to the motherfucking mob. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a pleasant way to say it, which I, I think is dope, but I mean, most people might not. And I'll never forget, it was crazy. Um, he wasn't part of the Gambino crime family and no shit like that, but his actual name was mentioned in the movie Bugsy. In the movie with uh, Warren Beatty, like that was like based off real gangster shit. And I remember they mentioned his name in that movie. It's pretty crazy. And he used to get out dugout seats. Um, that's like floor seats at Laker game, right? He used to get a dugout seats at the Dodger games when Fernando Valenzuela played. And Fernando Valenzuela back then, motherfucking El Toro, this motherfucker was, he was as big as Magic Johnson. He was fucking famous as shit. Anyways, my mom held it down, and uh, she was doing that whole hustle until uh, the riots happened. And when the riots happened, uh, you know, it ended her business. And uh, my mom found a new business. You know, she took a little time off and then she found a new business with um, my stepdad, who pretty much I consider my dad. Um, rest in peace, Leo, man. He's fucking one of the most amazing people in all my lifetime. I, man, I can't even tell you. Never judge me. I don't know, man. Was so good to my mom. I can't even, I can't even tell you. This dude was literally the most unbelievable person in my life. Um, he passed away like seven years ago, so I, I don't remember exactly, but he passed away months apart from when uh, Jonas passed away. That was, that was a tough fucking year. I never really talked about that, but um, my mom found a, a new business. Uh, she started a Korean bakery, and my mom was heavy into cooking. She was like master chef. Like she was just so ill with it, and I didn't realize until I started going to other people's homes and eating their food that how ill my mom was, like, well, you know, on the chef level, on the cook level, and I'd even go out to restaurants and my mom would walk into a kitchen and my mom would slap the shit out of the cook in there. My mom was crazy as fuck. My mom would be like, what the fuck you think? What the fuck are you thinking? What, what, why would you put this with this seasoning with this? Like, you know what this shit tastes like? And no one would ever say anything to my mom because she was feared. And my mom was so respected in the Korean community. You know, my mom was one of the first five people to own a business. Like one of the first five Korean people to own a business in like, like that, that Koreatown LA area. And my mom was, was uh, also like, you know, one of the first Korean people, let alone women, um, she was connected to the city council, all the, you know, the, the, um, prominent Korean people that were in the business, uh, all the above. And like, you know, even later on, this is some crazy shit just to talk about. This is, we're talking about the early nineties right now. You know, um, I'm just jump skipping five years ago, like much more recently, obviously one of my neighbors, her name is Tony Ko, it's a Korean lady. She, um, sold her makeup company, NYX to L'Oreal for like $300 million. And she owned the entire fucking company, right? Started the shit up, had no investors or anything, whatever. And I'll never forget, I was like, who the fuck got a Bentley and a Ferrari in my building? She had a Scuderia too. She had a, she had a lit, she had an F430 Scuderia, it was fucking sick as fuck. And she was in parking spot one and two of our building. And our building was filled with all kinds of yuppies. 
and like USC kids and all these little rich kids and shit and like like new doctors and stuff and they thought they were lit and it, listen it's all good I'm just saying these are dudes who always talk shit to me and be like oh they look at me like sideways and like my my our parking lot was lit me and my cousin lived there too so my cousin Steve was in this building too so it was like extra lit and I had mad cars and you know I had Rolls I had a fucking Lambo he had the Range had a Bentley and so people were like yo this motherfucker Ben Parler lives in here and um Anyways, one day I see this girl. She's pretty, and she she's walking to her um, walking to her car, and she every time I'd see her, she's always dressed to the fucking T, like straight up, like nails, hair, everything done right. Saint Laurent tribute sandals, um, makeup on point. She's always in a fire dress, you know. It's just expensive, high fashion outfit, and like um, she never said hi to nothing. She was just like on some other shit. And then one day her brother um, noticed me, and uh, I guess he told her. Like, yo, man, Ben Baller lives in your building. And she's like, he's your neighbor. And she's like, who the fuck is Ben Baller? And um, she found, I guess, whatever. He put her up on game. And so we became friends. And, you know, Korean people was a small community. And she, she began to follow me on social media. And we talked. And um, she was married to some fucking cornball dude. And I hope that Tony don't listen to this. But I think she ended up divorcing the dude anyway. So it don't matter. But um, one day she saw, I posted a picture of my mom. And she's like, holy shit. She like DM me. She's like, your mom is fucking the best like i love your mom she is a fucking boss she's like i used to go to the same korean health spa it's a super korean thing and um i would be like sitting down locker in the back and i'd hear your mom because your mom's voice is really loud and she's like i'd hear your mom talk all the time and tell stories and you know i heard things about her i can't believe that's your fucking mom it just makes so much sense and i was like yeah that's where i got my hustle from you know um this is a Korean woman who's younger than me and she's worth over a quarter billion dollars telling me that my mom was a fucking boss, you know, and an inspiration for Korean women. It just fucked me up. So that's like the history. I had to spend 15 minutes kind of breaking down like that's how deeply embedded, you know, I respected my mom's hustle from everything she did. Um, obviously, my mom's retired now. Um, so anyways, my sister... She had that same hustle as well. And I knew once I finished college, like me and my mom would help me out with a loan or something. Like just, you know, like bless me with some kind of paper or something, you know, like when my brother and sister had finished college and she helped them out. And like when it came down to me, um, I was like trying to finish school as fast as possible. And the time I finished school, my mom had hit hard times. So like the, the well had dried up and uh, she couldn't help me out. And, uh, you know, part of me held a grudge, but I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? You know, I mean, I, I'm broke. I got nothing. I got to figure shit out. And um, I'm being a, I'm a PA and that shit ain't paying nothing. Being a PA has got to be the worst fucking job in the world in Hollywood. You're somebody's bitch. You know, I was a fucking key grip, best boy, all that shit. I fucking built a fucking house. Like I've literally built a goddamn house. Like I built a, I'm talking like foundation. We built, I don't even know what the, I don't, why the fuck does building out? What the fuck that shit got to do with building up with a movie? Like when you see the 17 minute long credits and movies and shit, there's people building shit and doing all kinds of shit. And then you'll realize what all that shit meant. Like, fuck that. Being a PA sucked. And um, my mom couldn't help me out. And she's like, hey, I'm going to uh, give you the title to your car. So you have your car and you won't have any car payments. You know, like I came back to LA and I was like, all right, well, at least I got my car. And, um, you know, it was tough trying to find a job. I was out fucking around getting high and, and I was still active. I was still playing basketball. You know, I went to, to Beijing to try to play pro and it didn't work out. 
Um, we'll get into that more in another episode. And, and um, I didn't make my insurance payments on my car. And I'll never motherfucking forget, I was going to go meet some homies at the lighter shade of brown. There's a real big fucking group from LA. They had a couple hits, like major hits. They had a, um, on a Sunday afternoon, it was a fucking huge song, man. That shit just fucks me up when I hear the song. Um, anybody over the age of but maybe 35 would, would should definitely know. Anybody the age, over the age 40 and grew up in LA, one million percent you knew the song. And um, I went to a video shoot, and it's funny because that was the maybe second or third time I, I had um, heard about Mr. Cartoon. He was a legendary dude, and this is you know way, way before his his time of fame. He was a street dude who, who people knew on street, but he had his lowrider in this music video for Lot of Shade of Brown, and I went to the video shoot, and I'm chilling. I parked my car right on Melrose by Paramount Studios, and um, I had a 1992 Prelude, and it was like obviously years have gone by, but I had a 19, 1992 Honda Prelude SI, and I thought the car was kind of dope, and um, I didn't make my insurance payments, and this is the time and era where motherfuckers were stealing cars, and I came back, sure enough, I thought my car was towed. I was like, oh man, the car was towed. Then I looked and saw that there was a car in front of where I parked it and a car behind where I parked it. I'm like, yo, someone stole my car. So I had to tell my mom, and my mom was like, man, what the fuck? Why didn't you tell me you couldn't make your insurance payments? I was like, what do you want me to do? You know, and she felt bad and she didn't know what to do. She's like, well, I can't afford to get you a car. You know, you just gonna have to figure it out. So now I got no car. Um, I'm broke and I got no way to get a car. And this is LA, man. It's like the worst fucking possible place you can be without a car to this day. So um, my sister had been running a dope-ass fashion magazine called Detour, and it was low-key lit. It was like a really respected fashion magazine, and she didn't get paid much, but her juice card was crazy, you know what I'm saying? And um, I was DJing like random-ass little spots, like underground spots and whatever, like super hip-hop shit, and uh, I would go anywhere, you know what I'm saying? That, that, would, that would pay me $100 a night, and, and that was fucking cool with me. Finally, my sister, she was connected pretty heavy, and... Um, she connected me with the owner of the world-famous Roxbury Nightclub. And that's where I met um, Ely. Ely Samaha. And he was a crazy Lebanese dude. This motherfucker was like Italian mafia style. Like this dude was, was a trip. He owned like three or four club, restaurant clubs, supper clubs around town. And they were all popping at the time. This was like during the Brent Bolthouse era. Anybody over... 30 something should definitely know who Brent Bolthouse was this guy is a legend in fucking LA nightlife this dude was way before any of that fucking SBE shit that or any of that fucking shit or was it SBC or what the fuck's SB whatever the fuck it was whatever Sam Nazarian's uh, bullshit ass clubs were um and Bolthouse was just kind of like just becoming to be like the Hollywood nightlife king and at the time he was running a restaurant called Babylon and um Ellie owned that shit is it Eli Eli I'm sorry Ellie? It's Eli. So anyways, um, this place Babylon is, is right on Robertson and like Neil Melrose. So it's like um, right where uh, Sir is. If you ever watch that show, The Vanderpump Rules, whatever, it's Lisa Vanderpump's club, uh, restaurant. And uh, it's funny, I shot my one of my reality show series there, episodes there with Robert Kardashian. Anyways, um, I got a job promoting the Roxbury on Thursday nights. I was handing out flyers, handing out club, uh, little cards. And anytime someone came in with my car with a stamp on it, I'd get a dollar for it. And, um, you know, I was out hustling. I was going out to other clubs, prone, trying to get people to come. I was going to bar one. I was going to fucking all over the place. And um, Thursday nights was like a cool night. And once in a while, you know, I'd see a few big, big celebs. It's like Keenan Ivory Wayans and shit. And like um, 
by random luck, I met Mark Wahlberg there and on my Thursday night and we became cool friends. And then we end up hanging out and kicking it, getting high, fucking around, getting in trouble. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. But um, actually, no, fuck that. We're going to get back into it right now. And then we'll get into it because we, we and Mark Wahlberg are still homies to this day. And, you know, I always knew he'd be somebody dope. And it was crazy how he became a fucking enormous star that he is now. I mean, like ridiculous star. I mentioned before that in high school, there was a dude that was like super lit, was always like, you know, moving and shaking. His name is Guy Siri. I think I brought his name. I definitely brought his name up in the podcast. Had to early on. And, you know, Guy's been involved with like Uber and um, managing Madonna. And he just was, he was plugged in early and um, he was just a fast talker. And he was just, he always had it going on. I just ran, ran into fucking Guy actually at the NBA finals, the uh, the Golden State Warriors, this is the most recent finals. And Guy's like friends with every single fucking major, major person in Hollywood. He's so connected. It's not even funny. This dude was best friends with Russell Simmons. He's like really close with Anthony Kiedis. And just, he's plugged in with everyone. He's still relevant and everything. And like, you know, he don't know this. And I've mentioned it a bunch of times. You know, he was my motivation coming in because he was, you know, we were, we were roughly the same age. He was a great above me. But this was the dude, he was the reason why I didn't want to go to college. Like, fuck basketball, fuck football. I want to run with Guy Osiri. He was... I knew he was going to go places. I just knew it. And um, there was a few dudes from Fairfax and from Beverly that were making moves. And I just knew that they were. And they still ended up, you know, popping off. And um, some of them just ain't doing much now, but they, their papers is solid. And Guy was one of them. And like when I got out of college, you know, like years had gone by, you know what I'm saying? Like it had been like five years since I seen him. And when I came back, he was already lit. Like he was already popping. He had bands. He was a fucking head of A&R. He was already lit and as time went on he just got more lit and lit and um you know here i am i'm a promoter at a fucking nightclub that he could get into any time and like he's just he's you got a credit card and fucking uh business uh, you know a fucking expense account all that shit and um mark invites me out one night with some random dudes he did a movie with i forgot what movie it was at the time and so we go to this party and we're up in the hills and we go to we end up at madonna's house and I'm like, oh shit, now you gotta remember, man, Madonna might not sound like that much now for you kids, but like, yo, limit, listen, man, Lady Gaga, fucking Ariana Grande, and like, she was Beyonce level then. This was like literally that big of how fucking legendary Madonna is, you know? And we end up at the house and um, they start kind of giving a shit for being there, whatever. This is, you know, Mark Wahlberg's done with the Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And uh, he's like Calvin Klein ads and everything. He's killing it. I see Joe Pesci. And I like bug out. I don't really care about celebrities too much. I'm from LA, but like I saw Joe Pesci. I was like, oh shit, it's Joe Pesci. And um, so a fight broke out. And Mark ended up knocking a motherfucker down, like down the driveway, like knocked his ass out. And uh, it was fucking Guy Osiri. And I was like, oh shit. And I didn't, I don't think Guy, Guy didn't see me. And I didn't know what to say because it was like, it was, it was crazy. And Mark was a fucking, Mark was a beast, man. Mark, first of all, was, he's from fucking, you know, he's from Boston, South Boston, the motherfucker was from, you know, he's, he didn't come up rich at all. He's, he was a fighter, he was a scrapper, motherfucker was buff as fuck. He's in good shape. And um, I found out later, man, from like, from Mark, for other people, like, I had to go, like, he was, he had nightmares about the shit, you know what I'm saying? And part of me was like, yeah, fuck this dude, man. He, he ain't trying to put me on, so fuck him. But, um, I mean, I think about it now, and if I was on, would I put somebody else on? I have no idea, you know, I was in that position then. Anyways, going on. I met Mark at the Roxbury and, and that, that was my dog. You know what I'm saying? This was fucking 24 years ago. But uh, going back to working at the club, you know, I hated wearing a suit. I felt fucking corny as fuck. I felt out of place, you know. I, I was broke. 
But um, even though I was broke, like broke was a mentality, you know what I'm saying? Like it was like it was it was different. Like I was I had no money, but I wasn't broke mentally. I I was so optimistic. I like I knew that I was gonna be I, I was gonna make it. I was gonna do some shit, you know, and just going to the club, I just felt like there's gonna be, you know, some sort of a network out there, you know, and like every Thursday night there was this DJ and his name was uh Rob. I don't remember if it was Rob G or something. Fuck such a long time ago. But the promoters of that night were called Artist Group Network, AGN. Later on, these guys would start a uh, a hip-hop group, a local hip-hop group. They kind of blew up a little bit. They're called the Cottonmouth Kings. It's fucking totally crazy. Brad X, my boy Lou, man, I don't, you know, shout out to Rob and Brad X. I ain't seen, I saw Rob not that long ago, but I ain't seen Brad in forever. And it's just crazy how, you know, that the world is so small and you just cross paths and everything. And Anyways, Rob, the DJ... Um, I would listen to his sets because he was a professional, you know, he's, he's a legitimate put on nightclub DJ, professional DJ. And he'd start off almost every week. He would start off the night when it was early on when no one was really dancing, the club just opened. He'd start off with Tana, a Heartbeat by Tana Gardner. And that song was, man, bro, like, Heartbeat, it make it feel so sweet. Like, Miles, man, cue that song of Cue Heartbeat by Tana Gardner. Man, I love that fucking song. Like, you know, so many hip hop artists, like big hip hop artists, sample that beat. And like, even like De La Soul, Buddy, the remix, this shit was, this was like the disco era of clubs. In the clubs, they're playing like disco, um, pop house music, like um, Hathaway, like, what is love? And all that shit. And fucking Robin S, Show Me Love, and all that stuff. And once in a while, they play hip hop, you know, like, they would get a little lit. And, um, this was the time when Brian Austin Green was promoting, Brian Austin Green from 90210 was promoting um, Bar One. So that was like our opposing club. And they had the cooler club. They had the doper bitches. They had, they had, they had, he had hoes on that motherfucker. And my boy DJ Tony Stewart was uh, Brian Austin Green's DJ. And it was like, he was, uh, he was lit, man. I know Tony's still around now. I see him once in a while pop up on social media. And um, Roxbury is a legendary motherfucking nightclub if you don't know. But this wasn't the golden best era. This was like, towards the end of like the the not necessarily but yeah it was like a slight decline of the club um because it went on you know for a while after that but you know they made the fucking movie about it you know night at the roxbury but like back in like the early like super early 90s when roxbury opened up like you go there any fucking night and you're gonna run into like 89 90 you go in there and you'll see madonna mike tyson prince you know magic fucking jack every single gigantic huge a-list celebrity like not you go now and be like oh shit i saw future and i saw fucking i don't know man some fucking rapper that just it does it's really not that big of a deal this shit is like a big fucking deal and like this was you know four years later from that but you know prince and uh and a few others i'd see you know once in a while but i'm from la again you know so i don't really care about that type of shit i just want to dj so bad because i was a dj and i was trying to trying to get on and i'm here fucking promoting and so that, well, you know, that headline DJ, Rob, one day he went out to do a commercial. It was for like Pepsi or Mountain Dew. And um, it was a skydiving commercial. And like the next day or something, I found out that he died. So he was skydiving in the commercial and um, his parachute didn't open. And the backup didn't open either. And he fucking died. I was like fucking bugged out. I was like, oh shit. So the backup DJ on Thursday night was a dude named Trevor. And Trevor began to cover Thursday nights and like for a few months, 
he was on, and I was like, fuck, man, I got it, man, they ain't got no backup DJ, man, There's, I'm hoping these motherfuckers, you know, pick me, and like, I'm trying to get on, and like, you know, I found out that dude had a drug problem, and you know, he wasn't a dick, he wasn't problematic or anything, he was just, he just was, he would be all over the place, but he was a good DJ, when he was on, he's on, and then, and then he'd have his off nights, and um, sometimes he wouldn't have the, the club dancing heavy, and back then, if you were DJing, it was stressful as hell, like, you had to have the people DJ, you know, on the club, like, dancing, You'd have to have a dance floor packed, people dancing, really busting moves and everything. And um, if people walked off the floor because you know you played a song you didn't like, you know that they didn't like, you know it was a bad thing. So you did whatever you could to keep them on there. So you had to you had to play hits. You know you couldn't play like you couldn't really experiment so much. You know it was totally different. Even though I fuck with underground clubs, you couldn't put no, play no underground hip hop over there because it just wouldn't pop. And I didn't really fuck with underground clubs at this point because my overall scratching skills wasn't like on par with like. Homicide. Like, Homicide was one of the fucking dopest fucking DJs in the world. Shout out to my boy Craig, and he's one of my best friends, you know. And um, there's battle DJs out there that would go crazy, and this was like a different thing. And like, back then, you go to an underground club with all these, you know, super hip hop clubs, it'd be like 95% dudes, you know. This was just like, here's what it is. But um, back in the day, even the club days, even if you're popping, not everyone had the same records. And I had, I was really like, I was a record hoarder, and I was, I had plugged in, and I had records. I still kept all my records. I was DJ. I practiced at home and everything. And I, my mixes were on point. And um, even some of the record pools, the major record pools that were servicing all the DJs, they couldn't get the exclusive joints early. But anyways, while I'm promoting this club and other spots that um, that Eli owns, his wife, that you know, the girl he's married to, is a famous actress named Tia Carrera. And um, I ended up being a part-time assistant for her because I work for Eli, you know. And... Um, to be truthful, you know, we're supposed to back our Asian people and, and, but man, like she was such a bitch. She was so bossy and she just, fuck, I just hated working for her. And fuck, like one day I had to fucking bring her some colored contacts to the set of Wayne's World. She was a star of Wayne's World, that movie. And I had to bring a set of contacts to Wayne's World too. And uh, she was like, yeah, bring my aqua um, contacts from my medicine cabinet, whatever my drawers. I was like, some shits look all the same to me. So I brought back a, a set and she was like, no, these are green. You got to go back and get me my fucking aqua ones. And I was like, man, like really? So I got to go all the way back up to her fucking house. And um, by the way, I'm borrowing my sister's car. So this fucking sucked. Or I borrowed my cousin's car. And it just sucked, you know, driving to all that stuff. And um, I go back in the hills. I get the right ones. And uh, I couldn't quit on her because, I, you know, I needed the job. One night, right across the street from the Roxbury. And the Roxbury now is Pink, Pink Taco. At one point, it became Miyagi's, which was like fucking legendary ass spot too. I didn't really fuck with it so much. And it's crazy, crazy fucking backstory. One of the other dudes from school that was popping, his name is Larry Pollock. Larry Pollock owns, um, is it the Saddleback? Whatever the fuck, the Saddleback fucking restaurant, the bar that's on fucking Sunset. Right there on the Sunset Strip where they have the horse and shit, Charlie's Angels and whatever. And he owned uh, Miyagi's too. And that place was fucking, he had that place cracking. And this dude used to do parties in high school. When I was at school, he always had parties. And this dude didn't come from no money. He was just a shrewd ass shrewd fucking super shrewd jewish business dude and the crazy thing about this whole shit that goes full motherfucking circle is known this dude forever in the club business this dude bought a mansion in calabasas way the fuck back you want to talk about some forrest gump shit one day drake invites me to his crib he just bought this new crib he's like yo come to my house and i pull up to the crib i'm like yo dog bro my boy used to own his crib. He's like, who the fuck's your boy? I'm like, Larry Paul. Like, how the fuck do you know Larry? 
Everyone in the house, 40, CJ, like security guards, they all knew like, yo, listen, what the fuck you talking about? And I'm like, bro, I went to high school with this fool, bro. He owned Miyagi's, he owned fucking Dublin's, he owned fucking Saddleback, all this shit. And they're like, bro, he wrote the names of those clubs on this thing. And that's like the legendary Drake's crib where the fucking waterfall and the pool and everything is. And Drake was like, what the fuck? Fuck that dude, man. That dude fucked me over in this house. Like, you know, he made me do karaoke at his club and didn't discount the crib. And it's just crazy. So anyways, that club after the Roxbury you know, my um, high school fucking alumni, one of my classmates fucking bought that spot. Going back to the story, I'm so sorry, man. Being Tia Kerr's assistant across the street the, the, from the nightclub from, from, from Roxbury was another nightclub called Carlos and Charlie's. That actually was the club where Eddie Murphy got in a fight and um, Danny Terry was talking about the story and was it Raw or Delirious? I forgot, but he gets in a fight at the nightclub and he gets sued. That was the club he got in a fight at and it's just crazy historical Hollywood history there. That club ended up turning into the legendary club Dublin's, okay? And like Dublin's is was popping. Monday nights at Dublin's, I was a DJ with Dave Orlando, and it was a Bolt House you know, production. It was a Bolt House promoted night, and I was a DJ there. This is later, later on. And um, Jay-Z shouted the club out because I was a DJ there, you know what I'm saying? And Jay-Z shot on us on his hit song, Give It To Me, Give It To You, with, with Pharrell singing on it, and he says, Bubbling at Dublin's. And he's referring to the night I used to DJ at. You know, Miles, cue that song up, man. With girls from Club Cheetah, the Club Amnesia, the Peanuts in LA, Bubbling and Dublin, Candy. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, motherfuckers, man. I've been, I've been on, man. I've been, I forgot. Listen, man, I've been Ben Baller. I was who I was before fucking social media ever existed. So, anyways, that place was called Carlos and Charlie's, and uh, one night I'm there waiting on on Tia, and I fucking met Christopher Walken there because he was a uh, a co-star in Wayne's World 2 as well and that was fucking surreal because he's the king of New York that's a different level like of me and that shit so now to the moment of truth finally one night at the Roxbury nightclub this dude Trevor does not show up he's smoking crack true story doesn't show up and I tell the manager I'm like yo man you about to have a fucking club open up without a DJ are you fucking kidding me right now fuck this man come on let me get my records let me get my fucking records, please. So, you know, the manager was like, yeah, man, fuck it. Go get your fucking records, man. And, and, and I was like, all right, cool. So I run and go get my records. Um, I live right down the street, thank God. And I brought my boy's car. Go down to the fucking club and grab my records. You know, I live like literally three, four minutes away. And mind you, this was the age in, in LA when you could drive from the center of Hollywood to deep downtown LA in 15 minutes. Like, you can drive from downtown LA to Sherman Oaks in, at fucking four o'clock and get there in 20 minutes. And it's crazy how much fuck shit has gone on since then because fucking traffic's so goddamn bad now. Anyways, I got back to Roxbury in like 15, 20 minutes with my records and I had my first night as a real club DJ at a major nightclub, like a fucking real famous fucking nightclub. Whether it was on a decline or not, it was a fucking super fucking famous nightclub and I got my fucking first night DJing and I fucking killed that shit. And um, from that point on, it was game over. I was rocking Thursday nights for a while, you know, until like, and I'm popping, like it was dope. It felt like nothing, it was nothing, no, no other. And uh, I was getting a hundred bucks a night, so it wasn't really shit, but it helped. I was able to just, I was struggling, but I was able to get shit going. And I heard from this one guy who uh, was a manager at 2020 Videos. It's fucking random as fuck, but he was giving me a bunch of free porn videos and shit, all kinds of stuff. I go in there and a bunch of things and, um, and it was fucking funny. And uh, it was crazy because it was right on the corner of Laurel Canyon and Ventura. It's a fucking FedEx there now and like a 
Blaze Pizza or some shit, whatever. But uh, he told me, he's like, hey, man, Jack Nicholson and a few other people, including Denzel Washington, opened a new uh, bar, like club on Melrose. And I'm like, word? Okay. And so you know, I find out later that, yeah, Denzel's opening up a new Jamaican restaurant called Creek Alley. And there was like no one, you know, there was no information on it or anything else. But it was a full bar as well. It wasn't just a restaurant. It was a full bar. And they're going to be open until 2 a.m. And this was like, you know, maybe more than a month before it was even opened. And I, um, you know, I was begging people for information so I can get a job there. And uh, nobody had no info. No one had no plugs or nothing. So I would just wait outside the, the address. And every day I waited, you know, for like not that long, like maybe four days. And finally one day I saw Denzel walk to his Porsche. And I pulled up right up on him. And I was like, hey, man. Um, and remember, this is post-Malcolm X Denzel. Like, this motherfucker is super lit now. He's beyond major, in enormous fucking celebrity. And I was like, yo, man, can I give you my mixtape? And he's like, we you trying to sell it? And I was like, no, no, no. You know, I know you like hip-hop. And uh, I just want to let you know, like, I can set the ambiance for your spot, for your bar. And, um, you know, I know you like, I'm telling you, like, if I'm not, if I'm not dope, I'll, I'll work for a year for free. And he's like, well, this ain't a club, you know? I was like, but, you know, I was like, I know you got a full DJ booth. And at the time, like, people in New York City, they were already doing this shit, like, at Moomba and just dope-ass spots that were, like, restaurants and turning into, like, you know, like a supper club type of thing. But, like, you know, he had a sound system there and everything. So he took the tape, he smiled, took off in his Porsche, you know? And I made sure on that tape I had Nas Halftime, I had fucking New York State of Mind, I had a couple of things, I had Farsight on there, what was current. And um, I had heard Denzel like Nas and shit. So anyways, a week later, I get a page on my pager I don't have any, we didn't have fucking cell phones back then, you know. I mean, there were cell phones existed, but they're too expensive. And like, um, I get a page, and this girl Tish hits me up, and she's like, "Yeah, you know, she's the office manager. Like, hey man, bring your records. You start this Friday, you know. It's like it wasn't opening night; it was like the week after. And um, I'm a DJ that night, and uh, the pay again wasn't that great, but I was hungry as a motherfucker. And speaking of hungry, the food was fucking flames. It was amazing. It was the first time I ever ate Jamaican food, and I fell in love right away, like right there. I was like, yo, this shit is crazy. I had curry goat, you know, I had, you know first time having uh, jerk chicken, having festival and like fucking um, Aki and, and, you know, having cola champagne and ting and just, it was just so fucking insane. Like it was, Jamaican food is like my top three favorite foods in life. Like it's just, it's crazy. And so like right off top, I, I just started killing the night. I'm just, I'm playing all the shit and playing funk. I'm playing Earth, Wind, and Fire. I'm playing everything, cool shit, everything. Because they didn't really want too much hip hop. And the place is fucking jamming. The place is popping like a motherfucker. And like, even Monday nights there, which was like unheard of, was lit. You know, and so I was asked to DJ resident, um, be the resident DJ for Friday and Saturday nights. And um, shit was so popping. I started actually coming just like in the middle of the week, like on a Tuesday and Wednesday and like they'd have jazz nights or whatever. I ended up just popping up doing random DJ sets and um, I got a salary of $500 a week, which was like insane for me. That was a lot of money back then, you know? And on top of that, I began to DJ all these exclusive parties for like these celebrities that would show up. Like Queen Latifah was a big, you know, um, she attended the, the spot a lot. She would frequent it. And um, um, I'd mentioned in the Jordan Woods episode, you know, I DJ Jada Pinkett's birthday party there. And Jada Binkett's party is where, shit, man, it was like, that's where I met so many fucking celebrities, mostly a lot of black celebrities and like a lot of NBA players and everything. And like, I got to reconnect with Jason Kidd there. And um, now that people know I went to Albany, you know, um, I played against Jason Kidd in high school. You know, he went to St. Joseph's and I was in Alameda, you know, and um, I went to Albany. So like, you know, they're in our conference. So, you know, also I played at Cal and like um, Jason got there the year after, um, he, he got there when, when, I, when I left, Jason got in. 
we had mutual homies. He dated a chick from my high school. And, you know, we just caught up. We, we chopped it up and shit. Also, you know, I met Tupac that night at Jada's party. Uh, she was obviously super close with him. And it was funny. I That was the first time, um, not the first time I've seen Dr. Dre. I've seen Dr. Dre many times at concerts and stuff because NWA is my favorite group. But um, I saw Dr. Dre get in a fight with Michelle A. And I was a huge fucking Michelle A fan. Like, goddamn, No More Lies. I love that fucking song. And, man, everyone was fucking there at that, at that restaurant, man. Like, Martin Lawrence fuck i can't even begin to tell you like stars were even made in there that were, that were like they had a jazz night there they had this um r&b live that this dude billy hammond did and billy hammond's still doing some kind of entertainment thing he's 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 in there because i see uh i see cats fuck with him like cedric the entertainer and cedric's my guy shout out to said uh, a bunch of other people and um chris tucker used to pull up there when he was broke he wasn't even put on yet but chris tucker was fucking with death row and death row was heavy heavy present in creek alley and uh, there was just so much motivation because I would see people broke and then later see them pull up in a Land Cruiser. And if you had a Land Cruiser back then, like, oof, like Heavy D had a Land Cruiser. And this was just, this was like a sick-ass car. Like, you'd see Benzes and just like dope-ass whips would pull up, you know? It was just, it was some shit. I just knew I was going to get discovered or make that right connection right there. And that one night finally came. I remember the manager, um, well, actually, I'm sorry, one of the owners of the restaurant, um, Brad Johnson, who was a huge black socialite in the upper echelon of like, of the whole world. He, he was um, one of Eddie Murphy's close friends. He was like one of Denzel's best friends, and he was his partner. He told me, he's like, hey, Ben, I got to go to Vegas, man, so no fucking hood shit tonight, all right? We begin crazy in here, you know what I'm saying? We don't want no fights. We don't want anything, and I don't want you to fuck it up, okay? So don't fucking fuck around. You know, no bullshit. I'll be fucking, you know, I'll be watching you closely. So he jumped on a jet to go head, head to uh, Vegas to go watch a boxing match. And I'm like, motherfucker, you tripping, dog. I got the full run of the club. And I was like, fuck this. And there was like this gigantic, one big screen. There were screens everywhere. We had, it was kind of like a sports bar, Jamaican restaurant. And like, I had the full run of the spot. So I was like, man, hold on. I, you know, I control all the screens from the DJ booth. So I, I put on all these black exploitation films. So on a couple screens, I had the Mac. On one screen, I had Shaft. On another screen, I had fucking uh, Kofi and shit. And like, you know, Dr. Dre gets there early. And I'm like, okay, it's going to be a motherfucking night. And um, it was crazy. He wasn't talking to no hoes. He, had, he wasn't fucking, he was just vibing, right? And he was just literally sitting at the end of the bar, just straight vibing off of all the shit, all the rare grooves and all that funk shit I was playing. And um, he would check out the movie screen. He was watching that shit. I just saw him. It was just no fancy spot in L.A period would ever play this type of movie on a tv screen along with the type of music like i'm throwing Faso on there you know i'm throwing william devon i got roy ears playing like just gangster shit you know i'm like gradually playing from like the 60s like the jb's and shit to the 70s to the 80s and then like when i hit the 90s i started to get gang related you know what i mean i'm playing fucking current shit like dove shack warren g fushnickens fucking uh craig mack warren g and it's funny because I'm playing like fucking um, Biggie Smalls and like Dre was a big fan of East Coast music. He just loved East Coast beats, East Coast music. He was a huge Diamond D and just like premier. He's, he's a big fan of these dudes. And people, he was so West Coast. This guy's like the West Coast leader and people didn't fucking know that shit, right? And so like I threw on a mean ass set and then I took a break. I put a mix CD on and I walked down to where Dre is sitting. Like, you know, I, I like sit about five seats away from him. And I knew he was going to fucking talk to me. And I told the bartender, I was like, it's my boy Arthur, it's this white boy. And I was like, hey man, pour me a long eyelash tea. 
And so Drake walks up, he, he looks over at me and he goes, hey, hey, youngster, like, what you know about that music you was playing up there, man? And I was like, you know, he's, he's like, and hey, man, what the fuck? How, how you know I like uh, Long Island Ice Teas? And I'm like, I don't, man, bro, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, man. You know, I, was, I like a Long Island Ice Teas. This is my drink, you know? And I was like, I've been fucking with music since I was a little kid. You know, my brother would, uh, you know, play me a lot of fucking barcades and, and Earth, Wind and & Fire and like James Brown shit and everything. And I just, I just been down music since I was a kid, you know? And he's like, yo, you make beats? And this was the first time documented that Dr. Dre asked me, do I make beats? And I was like, nah, man. And he's like, all right, you got some skills, man. You know, give me, give me, a, give me a number. So he took down my pager number. And like a week later, I'm with my boy Field. Field worked for Def Jam West, and he worked for uh, my boy DJ Paul Stewart. Shout out to DJ P. Um, DJ P, Paul Stewart was vice president of Def Jam, and he ran West Coast of Def Jam. He signed Montel Jordan. Literally, this is how we do it. If you listen to the song, this is how we do it. He says, he goes, I ran to a DJ and Paul was his name. I think he said DJP a few times in the song, whatever, but that was Paul Stewart, my boy, his white boy. Shout out to Paul Stewart, I don't know if you listen to it, but Paul's around somewhere. And um, Paul was ahead, Paul signed Warren G, Paul signed Coolio, Paul was managing Farside and he was fucking killing it. My boy Field was his right-hand man. And I'm with Field and we're driving down Sunset and I get a fucking beep. And uh, these guys had cell phones, so I was like, hey man, Field, can I use your phone? And, and um. I called the number and the lady's like, yeah, how you doing? Uh, Can-Am Studios, how can I help you? And Field goes, hey, bro, that's Death World Records, homie. That's, that's Sam Sneed. And so Sam Sneed, he hits me up. He goes, hey, bro, you know, come down to the studio, you know, um, um, and bring some breaks. You know what I'm saying? Breaks were records, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, shit to, to sample off of. So I was like, I brought a gang of breaks from like, I brought a bunch of old Beatles records. I brought Boss Gags records, you know, Grover Washington and all kinds of shit. And Sam Sneed, who was Death Row's star producer at the time, he began to started making some beats in the studio. And this was like my first time in like, Can-Am Studios in Reseda, right? And like, I don't even go this far deep in the valley. This was, it was never really my thing. And like, I was an LA cat. I didn't really fuck with the valley like that. And um, this was the first night I actually met the Dog Pound. I met like all these motherfuckers, Snoop, everybody. I was like, I was tripping because I fuck with these dudes so heavy. I'm, you know, I'm a West Coast G from like, at, at heart. So this is also the, the, the first night I formally met Suge. And let me tell you something, Suge was fucking scary as fuck. This motherfucker, and I mean scary, I don't mean in a West Coast term, I mean Suge was scary, like I was frightened, like to hell. This, this dude was so, he was, he has the energy about him was so crazy, it, it was it was nuts. And the folklore around that surrounded him was like, uh, in the streets of LA, it was like worse than fucking Freddy Krueger. It was, it was just scary. And um, that night, someone spilled iced tea, like literally, literal iced tea, onto the recording board, you know what I'm saying? It was an expensive-ass knee board and fucking flying faders and everything. And so that was the first night, you know what I mean, me and Suge. And Suge beat some dude's ass, like right there, whooped his ass, beat the shit out of him. And um, there was LAPD working as security. And I didn't even know that was like possible. Never heard of like LAPD being a security. It was, it was crazy. And like that became popular later, obviously. And like we'll get into later when, when Biggie got shot in LA and everything. But um, LAPD was scandalous then, you know, and, and um. It was just fucking such a weird thing because dudes were smoking weed, motherfuckers were in the studio getting high, getting their dick sucked, acting crazy as fuck. There were fucking pit bulls fighting in the studio. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And this was when, if you had weed in LA, you had like, you had a 20 sack on, you're going to jail, bro. It's a fucking felony. Like, this was a different time in like life, period. And like, LAPD is working security. So, like, you know, they ain't worried about shit. So, like, anyways. I ended up going to that studio a lot, 
And um, I was able to get some placement on some records where people always ask me, hey, how you got them death row fucking plaques on the wall and everything? And like, I did some scratch inserts and, you know, um, shout out to the old school crew over there, man. Fuck, um, fucking uh, Krista Glove Taylor, uh, Stooby Doo, Stu Fingers. Um, who else, man, was up in there? Fuck, I'm trying to think, man. My brain is so fucking rattled now telling all these fucking crazy stories because this is fucking 20, you know, years ago, over 20 years ago. But um, I remember, um, you know, anytime I get a chance to talk to Dre, he's like, yo, man, I don't really watch you work, working over here. You know, this ain't really like a spot for you. You know, like I know, like, you know, um, you know, I got a spot. I got a dude you can meet and talk to and um, you can go work for this dude. And uh, later, obviously, you know, the outcome. I mean, most people know I end up working at Aftermath Entertainment. We'll get into that in a little bit, but we'll actually we'll get into that later. But uh, that guy he introduced me to was Brian Turner. And the crazy thing is, I was one of the first, you know, if you know who Brian Turner is, if you watched that Straight Outta Compton movie, you know, that movie was kind of like, kind of bullshit. Um, not bullshit, there's just timelines that are a little off and whatever, because I, I was there throughout the whole thing, and I know, but they had to make it a Hollywood movie, and um, I'm not trying to take away anything from F. Gary Gray, he's fucking super talented, and he was early, super early Priority Record uh, director, and um, so Brian Turner was CEO, founder, and owner of Priority Records, and um, he really did signed the California Raisins. If anybody remembers back in the day, they went gold. Then they went and went fucking platinum maybe. And Brian Turner was super smart, Jewish dude from Canada. And uh, he's the guy responsible for starting fucking, well, I mean, NWA and Eazy-E, my favorite group of all time, one of my favorite rappers of all time. And uh, that's where, you know, they got their start and shit, Master P got his start there. You know, we signed Jay-Z there. And um, Brian Turner was just a, he was a fucking genius and uh, he believed in me. He had a lot of faith in me, and that was the first time I got like a, a really high-paying job. I think I started out making $40,000 a year, but I started out as an A&R manager, so I wasn't at the bottom. I wasn't in the mailroom, but I was like, you know, there was people above me, and these motherfuckers let it be known. Like, you know, some Asian dude working in the fucking office, like, okay, we have to give this motherfucker some bullshit, you know, and um, to be completely honest, man, I think this is the part where I'm gonna cut it off because there's too much good shit that's coming up right now, and it's just, it's like... There's going to be a part two, part three, and part four, and there's just too much to talk about, you know what I'm saying? And, like, I want to continue later, and it's, like, when I continue, we'll talk about, like, when we did the Rockefeller deal and, like, me becoming friends with, with Dame Dash and um, me being way more popular of a DJ, connecting with bigger networks and, um, you know, meeting and becoming friends with Leonardo DiCaprio at the time and, like, using, like, I had clout at the time, you know, and then this was obviously, there's no social network, there's no motherfucking internet, nothing, and, um, you know, me and Leonardo DiCaprio was kicking it. It was cool, man. It was a dope era during that time. I was hanging out. Um, I got to live in, I was living in the same building as Tupac. Um, I had a fucking huge R&B group. Um, I was working with Faith Evans, working with Missy Elliott before she had a deal. And just like so much more shit. You know, I don't know if I could put these in sequence, you know, but I just want to call this the K-Town Hustler series. And the one we just did is the, the K-Town Hustler series one. But it'll all be told here exclusively on the Behind the Baller podcast. Yo, Miles, take us out with the motherfucking Lakey beat. You guys, I love you so much. You have no idea. I'm so excited to continue this series. Let me shut the fuck up. Yo, Lakey, Miles, Dust Brothers, let's go. Let's go.